All right. Hey, Clint, what kind of thing do you got? I got a jewel. Oh, if you're going to be hitting it too, then I'll keep hitting it. I was trying to get one last in. Uh, <laughs> I'm not afraid to do it on camera, but I don't have like a public persona that I got to protect. I'm just an engineer. Oh, I don't. Yeah, my public persona yeah. is that I don't give a fuck, so it's perfect. Okay, we're uh, good then. Uh, I got a Novo 4. A Novo 4. Yeah. Never heard of that one. It's, it's great. I love it. Yeah. I'm a fan. Chase just quit his. Good job, yeah. Chase. Yeah. Yeah. We're very yeah. we're very proud of him. Wasn't too long ago. Oh, we're live. Yeah. Cool. Did you not get the memo? <laughs> that we're live? Yeah. No. I mean I didn't see the, the timer, so hold on. I'm just gonna make a tweet so that we can so I can push it out. Um, okay. So Clint, you were on Chase's podcast two weeks ago? I want two or three weeks ago, yeah. Yeah. Two or three weeks ago. And then you, you got your own podcast? I, I watched a little bit of it, but I didn't have time to get through all he Chase does like three podcasts a week now. I can't keep up. Uh, so okay. I, <laughs> it's really pain, dude. There's so many good podcasts out there. It's tough. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. I have my own. Um started a year ago, right as the lockdowns really started to bite viciously and uh closed my mortgage company and started to scream into a microphone about how pissed I was. So what did the uh, lockdowns close the mortgage company? More or less. It, I mean was, that, Oh really? I'm a I'm a private money lender, so I have to actually care about the underlying collateral as opposed to a bank who gets all their money from the Federal Reserve. So I yeah. I could no longer, you know, in good conscience be a fiduciary for my investors and lend in that environment. So I closed down. Wow. And then you got on the mic and just started yelling. You got no, it. I haven't seen your shit. I don't know. Maybe you don't yell. Maybe you talk very good. Oh no, I yell. He, he yells. <laughs> he pounds his he pounds his fist. Yeah, I uh I've been on I don't know if you know any of these shows, but I've been on uh Part of the problem with Dave Smith and yeah, Tim, I love that show. Tim Cast with Tim Poole, um, Free Man Beyond the Wall with Pete Quinones. So it's I don't know that, that one. That's all been in the past three months. So it's it's been crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Did, did you that. know? Sorry, I'm I'm like interviewing you now. No, but did go you know? Go, did you know going into it that you had a penchant for getting on a mic and talking and just being natural and doing that kind of thing? Or not? I mean, not really. I, I had done a. Uh, like a three best friends, best guy friends, shit talking podcast that was just for fun. And I was always directing it towards political topics and neither of them were very pro that. So uh, we ended that a couple of years prior to the lockdowns. And then when the lockdowns happened, I was like, well, I know, you know, I have the equipment, I know how to do it. So I need an outlet so I don't lose my mind. And I just hopped on and started to do it. And I had a very small Twitter following, but um, because of my, threads about the lockdowns and how evil and awful and misguided they were it's kept going viral it started to bring in more listeners and it just kind of right. snowballed just snowballed yeah that's pretty cool you got your own show <laughs> no i don't have my own show i'm just an hey, engineer good for you man don't don't get yeah. a show we there's too many <laughs> i go on i'm on chase's show when, whenever chase wants me <laughs> nice yeah. yeah 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 so um uh andrew is always the guy that um uh pushes back at the dinner table on like Thanksgiving and stuff when our family celebrates together. So uh, he's um, always great to be with. You should have your own show, Andrew. You'd be really good at it. I, you know what would be a really fun show is like have a dinner table, invite my family, and I'll just host the podcast from the end of the table and just be like, listen to what these idiots are talking about. You know, and like push back on them. Call, we'll call it Pushing Back with Andrew Stern. Dude, we'll, a, there you <laughs> go. Thanksgiving dinner once a week and I'll, and I'll tell them how dumb their ideas are. I don't know. It's just the thing is that our, our, like our entire family and, 
I guess Chase's in-laws all consume the exact like the exact subset of information available online and in the media, right? They watch the same three shows and they get the same chain of emails and stuff. And so then these conversations wind up just being, um, well, I don't know, I hate to talk too much smack about all of them, but you know, like just sort of a, you know, a recap of exactly what's going on in the news. And of course that week you and I and, and Chase reach out. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm outside the bubble. I listen to Tim cast, but I also listen to some left-wing ones and I get news from everywhere. And then, you know, you kind of got to pop a hole in it. Yep. No, if I you're... find that it was, um, it's crazy that I, I've tried to have uh, liberal guests on and not to like debate, but just to hang out. Uh, yeah. My podcast is just very free form and uh, they're always polite, but they message back and they're like, you know, I don't think I'm a good fit. I'm like, come on. Like, <laughs> are we supposed to have conversations across any sort of political lines if, uh, yeah. if we're too scared well, to hang out with the opposition? The, the reality is, is that because cancel culture is largely derived from the left at this period. Um, they aren't allowed to speak to people like you because um, they can actually get canceled just for talking to someone who has beliefs that are disallowed. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I found that I found the same thing on my show. It's very, it's very challenging to get leftists to come on. You got guests that say that they won't come on chase. That's definitely, that would definitely happen to you. Right. I mean, you're just so outspoken on Twitter. I'm sure, I'm sure that left there's no, I guess, but I don't think I've, maybe I have and I, you know, I probably have and just don't know it, but I don't think I've said anything cancelable. Oh, Maybe. trust me, you have. For for a hard <laughs> for a hard leftist, I assure you you have. Yeah. <laughs> You're probably right. I probably just think I'm too reasonable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that you've said anything that's necessarily that bad. I'm just saying that you have said things that would absolutely Hey, Reed's up. Look at this moment. guy. <laughs> What's up, Reed? This is uh, my buddy Andrew with us, and uh, I take. Hey, Reed, how you doing? Yeah, I know Reed. I know Reed quite well. He's my buddy. Yeah, can okay. you guys hear me fine? Or I'll come through? Yeah, right. you sound great. All right, that's a rarity, so I'm just making sure. But <laughs> <laughs> we're Thanks just talking about how it's impossible to get any um, any uh, liberals to agree to come on the uh, the show with us. Yeah, yeah liberals Reed. are hard. Leftists will usually do it, like hardcore communists, but True. I can't get liberals to do it. Because well, they're already outside the Overton window on the other edge. Exactly. Yeah. There's nothing exactly. to get thrown out of. I'm not very right. lucky with like uh, mainstream conservatives either. Mainstream conservatives and liberals don't really want to talk to me, and don't they? They get triggered following me pretty easily too. So yeah. Now, when you say mainstream conservatives, do you mean like actual representatives or just sort of talking heads? No, just like pro-Israel, like pro, uh, you know, I don't know, just like tip- your typical conservative person. Pro-police, pro-military, pro-John yeah. McCain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Probably somebody, somebody whose source of income is coming from the establishment, right? That's the that's the real thing that's keeping them locked, locked in. Yeah, I mean, I don't, have access, I don't have access to too many like high up people. I just mean like I've offered to people on Twitter who have 10,000 followers or something like, hey, you want to talk about this? And never. So, yeah. Yeah, I oh, what are we gonna I, do? I've been tweeting a lot of stuff uh, that's antagonistic toward the FBI, um, and a lot of my followers are like super MAGA followers because um, uh, I had like a Tony Schaefer interview that went viral that was critical of the, the the integrity of the election. So I sort of got the whole like QAnon crowd very spontaneously and in a massive flourish. And whenever I tweet anything against the FBI, it's like I get a rash of comments like, you know, I used to like what you had to say. It's like, I haven't changed, man. Like, <laughs> you just saw a small part. <laughs> if, these, if these are people that are that are concerned with election integrity after after January 6th, they're they're still FBI supporters. That's incredible. 
I know, I know. And I had um um I had the guy that founded Revolver News on uh this this weekend. That that dude is brilliant. Um, it's, it's like that. It's like they're all waiting for the government to tell them when it's okay to start believing conspiracy theories. <laughs> like they're waiting for the CDC to come out and say, you know, it's uh, conspiracy theories are safe now. I mean, it's it's true wrong. though. It's it's just like yeah. the the alien investigations. Like now, all of a sudden, it's okay to talk about it since Tucker's talking about it. But before, yeah. you know, six months ago, you were a complete Alex Jones nutcase. If you talk, that's about what it. that's what they got to take down Tucker because he greenlights these things. He gives the seal of approval. It reaches critical mass. It's safe. You got yep. safety in numbers now. And Tucker has that power to sort of like sweep an issue over the finish line and now now everyone can talk about it so he's like the he's like that guy that like lives right on the edge of where what's permissible and he can usher things over and that's like such a dangerous thing he can yep. do whatever the hell he wants i wish why his head's on the chopping block yeah 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 uh the moment that i remember that was really crazy was right after trump's first impeachment you know all the republicans hated <laughs> the, the deep state and then <laughs> the uh, fact that you have to say first <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, the Republicans all hated the deep state. But then as soon as we airstriked Soleimani and we had a reason to go to war, then they all instantly believed everything that was coming, you know, from that area of the government. They're like, oh, yeah, no, they have the facts. They have the facts. I was like, what are you talking about? You just hated these guys three days ago. And they're like, no, no, no. But I don't know. There's just do you no. Think it's a mixed bag. Do you think that sometimes the intelligence community gets it right and sometimes they blow it? Or do you think it's just always evil? No, they get it right sometimes. I, I right absolutely know they, they definitely do. They do a lot of good stuff for our cybersecurity. I mean, we're we would just be yeah, like keep dead. the pipelines up and going. And well, <laughs> they fuck up too. Like I said, they get it right a lot of the time. They get it wrong sometimes. But we would just be dead in the water if if we didn't have them protecting us from China trying to hack the shit out of us all the time. It's good. You think so? Yes, I know so. How do you know? Because I you're tight been around. Me. I knew you were. <laughs> I've been I've been around intelligence people that work in cybersecurity. We have a deep like state that. operative amongst us. Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> well, helicopters. Sure I have the documents. I, I'm not sure that the Folks. the um, FBI or the intelligence community is required in order to protect us from cybersecurity threats. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that I think that they're probably several steps behind most um, proficient hackers. Uh, and the, and the, private private defense firms are yeah. almost certainly better. I think I think that my biggest concern is that it gives a false sense of security. That's really what it does is that it it makes it makes the private you know enterprise space feel as if they don't have to protect themselves when. You know, That's a very good point. Yeah, in truth, they ought to be. I mean, they ought to be taking this extremely seriously, and and I don't think they are yet. Right. We, ne we never give any of these markets. I mean, every time that we we catch this falling industry that like fumbled. We never give them the the opportunity to really suffer and evolve and become more robust. It's like every single freaking industry they fuck yep. up. The government steps in and they never they never get any better. No, which I mean, is why which is better. why we are on the cusp of yet a worse, bigger real estate apocalypse because we did not let the banks fail like we should have in two thousand eight. So here we go again. <laughs> really? Are we? I'm not following this. Is that what's happening? Same yes. thing. Really? Yes. Well, I mean, when the medium, <laughs> when the medium house home, excuse me, when the median home value increases 23 or 25% over the course of a year, and that year was a basically nationwide lockdown, it doesn't really make any sense why prices would go up. Because uh, well, it's not like people were making one, money last year. No, but one hypothesis is a bunch of people said, Oh, fuck, I'm locked in this apartment, I got to move to the country, I got to get out. 
so they, they all decided to buy a house in the suburbs. Yeah, maybe yeah. that explains 1%. Well, well, no, it does explain a, a big chunk of it, but it doesn't explain why you wouldn't have collapsing prices in those cities, which to a large extent yeah. you do not. And the, 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 the real underlying factor, the tie that binds between those two uh, you know, disparate market uh, marketplaces is that interest rates are hyper low and you can't find yield anywhere. So everyone is going to buy real estate because it's a place to store capital. And that's all there is to it. There is no that's rationale. That's me right now. That's yeah. me. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's you and about 50 million other people in this country that are all saying are all having the same thought process to go stock markets, crazy overvalued. Um, I'm sick of living in this small apartment because I've been locked in it for a year. I'm going to go buy something to try and try and get my leg on the economic ladder. And now they're looking at the banks too. I mean, when they get loaded, when they get pumped full of cash from the central bank because of various stimulus packages and they have nowhere to put the money, they're more likely to just give out mortgages because even if the homeowner defaults on the mortgage, if the value of the home is greater then there's very low, low risk, uh, unless of course the value of the home collapses. Right. So, this yeah, is why, well, it, it's money. even, even if the value of the home collapses, they get bailed out. So it's a, it's all the way across the board. It's a, I mean, it's a, like, it's a case study in moral hazard. You have yeah. absolute definitional moral hazard across the board from the banking sector because they are able to borrow money for free, lend out for little. And yeah, I mean, this, it's, it's a recipe for disaster, like guaranteed recipe for disaster. You cannot have starter homes that are at three quarters of a million dollars. It's insane. Yeah. Where's that big short guy, Chase, on this? On this? Uh, I don't know what um, Michael Burry thinks about the, the housing bubble. I know that he thinks that the economy is about ready to totally collapse. So I, I does. that would include the housing bubble. That would include um, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think he thinks is uh, he's, he's, he's posted quite a bit about the uh, M1 money supply going through the roof, which it did last year. And they tried to explain it away by saying it was just liquidation of existing savings. And that accounts for like maybe a fourth of it, but it's still an astronomical amount of money that was printed last year. And um, and I think that I think that he's absolutely right. It's just the, the thing that's really tricky is that it's, in my opinion, it's easy to get predictions right. It's just really hard to get the timeline right for when it's going to play out. So like Schiff, for example, has been right for like 20 years. But the yeah. longer he's right without it actually happening, the more like a quack he seems. Right. And I don't think he's a quack at all. But yeah. It's that, just, it's just that, kicking the can is like very awesome at it. He's correctly predicted 18 of the last three recessions. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that uh, Nate Bergazzi joke where he's got either the, do- the dog was going to die. I got a six-year-old daughter. It's going to be the first pet that's died in her life. I, I said, you know, we just got to tell her, honey, the dog's going to die. That dog lived for six more months. But I didn't want to stop telling her. So I told her every day, honey, the dog's going to die. <laughs> Bergazzi's awesome. Yeah. yeah and and let, me, let me clarify too. I, it's not that I think because inventory is so low, I don't think that the collapse is imminent. But if interest rates rise, get the fuck out. That's that's yeah. when that's when you'll know the game is absolutely over because if interest rates rise to even close to a, a normalization level, say four or five percent on you know on uh, prime rate, so you get like six percent mortgages. Oh my god, it's I mean it would be well. Death. And the thing to consider too, though, the difference, you know, and maybe I'm totally wrong about this. So Clint, please correct me if I'm off base. But last time, <laughs> you know, the major problem was that the 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 banks were lending money to uh, consumers that should never have been given mortgages right they're they're subprime right their their credit was super low they were high risk individuals and i'm not sure that that's what's going on now in terms of the banks just recklessly lending the money to 
uh, bad risks. But the fact that inflation is such a major player and if interest rates go up, then yeah, housing values could collapse. You know, that's that's a major detriment. But if people still if people hodl and still pay their mortgage, even if the home value is less than what they owe, um, you know, we're not going to see as much of a collapse as we did the last time. But maybe I'm just totally off base on that. Well, I mean, it, there's a fair argument to be had there. But, um, you know, first off, I, I don't buy that lenders have tightened their their standards that much, you know, that that it's like, oh, yeah, before we would lend to anybody for any reason without any proof of income. And now it's all perfect. You know, like, yeah, now that the federal government taught them a lesson by bailing them out. Right. That they won't do it again. Yeah. I mean, they're going to work around this in any way possible. It, what What is a major, you know, significant difference is that there aren't nearly as many adjustable rate mortgages. So we actually had like a ticking time bomb that we could watch uh, the last go around where like you could see, okay, how many of these mortgages are set to reset their rate higher in mm-hmm. 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. You could actually like time it. That's how Michael Burry and these other guys knew that the implosion was coming. This time we don't know because we don't have adjustable rate mortgages that are going to blow up the market because um, adjustable rate mortgages are very rare these days. So is it more fundamentally based? Yes, I would say it is. However, prices are higher than they were in 2007, you know, significantly. So you also have further way to fall. So it's like, I don't know. I mean, it, ultimately, it's just predicated on low interest rates. If interest rates stay low, you know, if they stay at one and a half or two percent, and you get a three percent mortgage for the next ten or fifteen years, yeah, it, we could be like Japan, where you just have this like this dead market that just fucking kicks around forever. I just don't believe that's going to happen. I think that at some point, the Federal Reserve will have to interest, uh, hike interest rates, or we'll have a hyperinflationary death spiral. Mm. What makes them? What makes them hike interest rates? I, I'm not sure. I'm not as uh, knowledgeable about the economics of that as I'd yeah, like. Yeah, it's to. it's inflation. I mean, if you okay. uh, basically what you're seeing right now is monetary velocity is picking up because there's so much money that's being right. pumped in the system. They so printed the, out. So if the interest rates trillion. are lower than the inflation rate, then they're still losing money, even if they're gaining uh, well, st- the actual unit number of dollars on the well, interest that's, the. Yeah, that's that's part of it, but it's it's really. For them, it's not about that. The, I mean, they set the rate wherever they want. I mean, this is only short-term interest rates we're, not, we're talking about. Uh, long-term interest rates are set by bond buyers and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's basically as long as inflation kicks up. I mean, if you have 6 or 7 or 8% inflation annually, which is what it looks like we have right now, I would say it's arguably significantly higher. You start oh, to see 2. people... 2%. Oh, yeah, well, it's... Yeah, two. I think they said it was 3 now, but anyways. Oh, okay. I think it's double digit. I think it's... Yeah, I think it's 70s level. Right. I agree. So this is my point, is that as, pe- as consumers start to go, uh, especially people that are on fixed income, like Social Security people, they go, I go to the grocery store, I go get my drugs, I go do, do my XYZ, and I can't afford my life anymore. You start to see people in the streets going, hey, fucking this is a problem. Um, so that that's why they have to hike interest rates, because you'll have a populist revolt. I, I've been saying I said last night, you know, if the Federal Reserve every day, the Federal Reserve doesn't hike interest rates is a day closer to a Marxist revolution in this country. And I believe that. So we'll see what happens. Right. But then hiking the interest rates at the same time could cause the collapse, like you mentioned earlier. Right. And, and it should. <laughs> yes. Right. So it's basically a hyperinflationary death spiral or a deflationary uh, death spiral, but I would prefer deflation because it's it's a more reasonable market response. I mean, that's what should be happening. Real estate shouldn't be a million dollars for a starter home. Like it's fucking dumb. Um, yeah. So we we need to correct it. It's the well, saddest thing in the net- world. Yep. Yeah, sorry, Chase. 
I was just going to say, well, when the average net worth of a 30-year-old is $7,000 in the United States, it doesn't make any sense that they'd be paying $5,000 for a mortgage wow. on a million-dollar home. Yeah, seven grand. <laughs> yeah. You can Google it. That's uh, this year or last year. Jesus. Yeah, net worth. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and 60-year-olds have a net worth of like 80 grand on average. I mean, it's it's wild. I mean, we, we are we are so close to the precipice, and, and everyone's just like, well, I can... I can get money for free, so I'm going to go buy a house. I'm like, okay, good luck. You know, like, <laughs> man, it's, it's man. super scary. Um, I'm worried too. And I don't, like I said, I'm not an, an economics expert, but I'm very worried about the state of the dollar as the um, world's reserve currency and how that's going to play out as, as China starts making moves in terms of the digital, the digital yawn that they're, um, they're putting together. And I think it seems to me from, um, just my perspective that they are intentionally doing everything they can to subvert the status of the dollar. And yeah. if we're not the world's reserve currency, we're really, really screwed because we've been sitting pretty for like 50 years, 60, 70 years off of basically the Ponzi scheme that is the dollar. And it's why we're all rich, even though we don't produce anything that the world uses. Right. And we're just sitting at the top, like, like uh, Bernie Madoff. Uh, of the scheme and it's like as you know it works as long as gdp grows faster than inflation but like that's not going to happen with this with these lockdowns and the economic pressures that we're having i think that we're really really on the verge of something uh tragic but yeah, well, inflation is already outpacing gdp growth so i mean we are we are existing in stagflation we are in the 1970s again this is that's what it is so mm-hmm. it's just a matter of you know is this temporary because that's what the federal reserve is claiming they're claiming that they yeah. could print seven trillion, put it into existence. They put thirty percent of the total mon- monetary supply that's ever been in existence. They did over the past twelve months. So, uh, is is inflation temporary? I'm going to argue no. I'm going to argue no. Fuck no, it's not. Um, but they are going to say it is. So we're going to find out who's right. Clint, the guy who actually predicted the 08 real estate collapse, or the Federal Reserve, who's told you that we're never going to have a collapse ever, 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 ever. No, Peter Schiff's the only guy who predicted the OA. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and, and, and seven others he got wrong. Well, yeah, exactly. I was actually growing a business and lending money for the past 12 years. And then I, then I shut down my business a year ago because I was so concerned about what I was seeing. Peter Schiff was telling you to buy gold in 2011. Oops. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I like, I love Schiff. I think he's, I think he's got great analysis, but I think he was dead wrong for about a decade and now he's right. And now he sounds like a nutcase because he's been wrong for a decade. So well, but if you if you look at Michael Burry and what happened with the Big Short, um, you know he he was correct in the timing because they knew when the the um, variable interest rates were going to kick in. However, he was very alarmed. If the movie's actually accurate to what happened historically or in the book that it's based off of, there was the behavior in the market did not reflect what he predicted initially. There was a delay and it was because they were lying and kicking the can too. So it's very possible that Schiff is actually right in all of his claims and predictions, but the market is just totally fixed in such a way that it doesn't reflect real, uh, the real environment in a, in a real time way. It's just delayed. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that could 100%. explain why, why he gets it wrong, even though he's right. <laughs> no, no, that's a hundred percent true, but it's, it's important. If you're going to be giving people advice that you explain to them that the federal reserve and the federal government had the capacity to kick this can a lot longer than you believe. So maybe you shouldn't be buying gold in 2011, you know, like that's where he fucks up because you mm-hmm. should be clarifying to your listeners who are relying on you for an investment advice to, know all of the potential factors that exist and it's completely naive of shift to have you know been advising an imminent collapse for 15 years straight when 
he knew as well as I did that the Federal Reserve was going to do what they did. They printed a ton of money and they they propped this shit up and they kept lowering interest rates to prop this shit up further. And it's like, this is not rocket science. Anybody with an Austrian economics background understands what the problem is, but they should also understand what the Keynesians will do in the meantime. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why. I think, I, un- unfortunately, I think that too much of his business um, model is tied up in this. Like he has... Uh, avenues to profit gold. from selling yeah, gold yeah. and selling all these things, and I think <laughs> I think gold. it it makes his his advice tainted. That's well, my that's my personal one thing. thing to consider too. Is and and I could be you know from I really appreciate Reed and and uh, Clint your perspective on this as libertarians. Um, and I don't know where where you are with this, but typically libertarians are very pro gold standard, right? Uh, on on money, um, it makes sense to me that gold would be a great investment in a, in a hyperinflation situation. But it doesn't make sense to me that gold would be a good investment in the case of like a total currency collapse, right? So like if if our currency collapses, especially as the world reserve currency, and we've seen other currency collapses in history, but never as global reserve currencies, we're talking about a situation in which cigarettes, ammo, and canned food are going to be more valuable than gold in my mind. Right. But if it's just hyperinflation like the 70s, then, you know, like it's, things are still functioning just in a really inefficient and shitty in desperate way, then gold seems like a really good investment. So do you think if there's going to be a collapse, like kind of shift kind of implies there's going to be a collapse. It's like, I'm not sure that lugging around a bunch of gold is going to be as helpful as nine millimeter. You know? Yeah. I think he kind of overvalues gold for its uh, inherent wealth because I mean, it doesn't have that much anymore. I mean, you can use it in electronics and it's very malleable, but I mean, it's not nearly as valuable as it always has been, you know, it's being used for, um, I'd say, f- I mean, there are other metals that are far more useful than gold now. Gold's just rare and shiny and pretty, and you can make nice jewelry out of it. So I don't know. Uh, but what with the world reserve currency, I mean, I, I, I was wondering what you guys think about, um, you know, how does OPEC play into all this? Because this isn't just a trade thing. Like there's a lot of military, um, you know, threats and alliances and, uh, weapons deals that go into maintaining the dollar's sovereignty around the world. So even if we are losing you to mean China, because of the petrodollar, is that yeah? What you mean? I mean, yeah. how do we? How does Saudi Arabia switch to supporting China or Russia or whoever ends up taking over instead of us after all the weapons deals we've done with them, all the you know stuff we've done against Saudi Arabia? Uh, sorry, against uh, uh, Iran for them. You know, like I mean, we've done. We're just so far down this tunnel. I don't see how it just smoothly transitions to them going with something else. You know what I'm saying? So my thoughts are that if the dollar does completely collapse, the world will not allow the United States to be the um, uh, uh, global reserve currency again. So if there were to be a reset. So they'll just all come together and say no. you You see behavior from China and you see that they're importing a ton of gold and they're stockpiling the gold that they're mining. And I think that they're trying to position themselves to be the most desirable uh, reserve currency in the event of a reset. Now that could be conspiratorial or alarmist. I don't want to be like that. Um, No, I agree with uh, you. But but that being said, so, so if there's a total collapse and all these countries come together, the United nations or whatever to try to figure out what to do and China's got all the gold, then it's going to make a hell of a lot of sense for the world, the world to be like, if they trust China, which they may not. Right. But for the world to be like, listen, we're going to make it the yuan because they have all the gold and they're going to back it by gold for real this time because the United States basically lied and didn't after, you know, after a number of years. And so I'm thinking that that's probably what we would see happen 
uh, in the event of a dollar collapse. But that's just my speculation as a layman who's read a lot of Wikipedia pages. Okay, so I'm not, yeah. I'm not by any means the right person to ask. I mean, we probably wouldn't be the world reserve currency anymore without all of our military in, uh, influence around the globe, right, Clint? Or do you think we still would be? Oh no, we definitely wouldn't be. I mean. Yeah. Uh, uh, I will I will push back on Chase saying we don't produce anything that the world uses. I mean, we certainly do produce a lot and electronics and, and yeah. I, I mean, we also consume a lot, which is also a thing that they need. Oh, we're the I mean, I think we're the number one consumer for sure. So, um, but we also produce a decent amount too. So, like, it, it's not as if we're you know a dead economy. Like we we do exist and we do pr- produce value and. Um, but to answer your question, no, the U.S. dollar would certainly not be the reserve currency, given how you know profligate we've been with our spending. I mean, anybody who's trying to maintain purchasing power with their reserves wouldn't put it in the U.S. dollar with them inflating it like they are. Um, but you know, historically, buying U.S. bonds has been a very good investment. It's been very secure. So I think that that like. There's something about trends, like the longer they persist, the harder they are to break. So, but when they break, they break viciously. So that's, that's how I envision it. It's like everyone has relied on the U S dollar and U S treasuries to maintain their purchasing value of their assets for, you know, decades and decades and decades. So it's very, they're very slow to adapt, but the, the smarter countries, the ones that see this trend starting to become tenuous, they are, they are positioning themselves, as you said, like China with Yuan and other nations, Russia as well, um, to try and fill that void when we collapse. I personally don't think it's going to be a snap from one to the other. I think that it's more likely that we'll have a balkanization where we have uh, a, yeah. a, polar, a polarized globe where you have XYZ countries that are afraid of us. Or we're giving the military support. They still trade in the dollar because they're our bitch, just putting it bluntly. And then you have all these other nations that will use the yuan and, uh, and maybe the ruble or whatever. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I see it going too. Just so having, it, seems, it seems like everyone wanted gold for a long time, and then it, we kind of switched from gold to uh, gold to oil. Oil basically ended up running the world. What if uh, electric motors really end up taking off and supplanting oil? Do you think that could be another way that the world reserve currency shifts? So it doesn't even have to be through OPEC aligning with different countries. It could just be you know oil becomes more obsolete and it's going to be lithium or something instead that becomes more valuable or it's certainly possible how, how rare is lithium i know they call it a rare or a thing but i have no idea it's really scarce. I yeah i guess i yeah. don't know it's not I don't so know rare either it's unaffordable to have a cell phone yeah it's true well cell phones yeah, are pretty expensive though but yeah i mean it's the there's just a ton of rare earth minerals that are used in technological development so i think that like you could I, like I, I don't think it's a bad idea to diversify into a, a portfolio that would hold, you know, seven or eight of them, and and just kind of bank on one of them being, um, you know, the primary driver behind that new technological innovation. Like if you had some capacity for cold fusion, but it needed, you know, so much cobalt, <laughs> you know, like if you owned a shitload of cobalt, you'd be like, dope. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of how I hedge against this stuff because I'm not I'm not enough of a technological expert to know what's going to win out. But I agree with you that there will be other, other assets. I mean, Bitcoin is another one. Um, other yeah, I'm surprised we made it this far without talking about crypto. Do you guys well, think you know, of- Libertarians, we got to bring it up at some point. 
So yeah. first of all, first of all, I want to talk about the um, uh, legitimacy or potential of crypto, but also I'm interested to hear your thoughts on Bitcoin versus other cryptocurrencies, um, because there are a lot of options and a lot of technological advan- advantages and disadvantages depending on where you want to uh, sure. invest. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm again since I'm not a technological specialist, like I don't I don't read code, so I can't I like I have to read about these different coins from other experts that do understand the underlying programming because I simply can't do it for myself. Um, but I believe that there are many, you know, alternatives that hold additional properties that have tremendous value. Um, you know, Monero and these other ones that are privacy coins, I think are very intriguing. Um, I like Bitcoin a lot just because it's the one that, like I said, with trends, it's hard for people to break out of it. So if people believe that Bitcoin is going to be the replacement for gold for a store of value, it's going to be really hard to get people off that. Uh, the value that is the belief in the first place, right? So as soon as people believe it, it has the value. To some uh, extent, to some extent. Know? Yeah. I mean, because, because it does take actual resources to produce, there is some intrinsic value to it. I mean, it's not like it's zero, but is it 30,000 per coin? You know? Well, right. in, in, I don't know. In the event of a total <laughs> currency collapse, it's a lot easier to exchange crypto for goods and services than it is to exchange physical gold for, for goods. Well, and it services is. It is as long so. as the government doesn't make it illegal. <laughs> so, aren't right. we kind of aren't we kind of to the point on the timeline where there is always going to be not a fiat currency, but we're beyond barter. I mean, we're never going to be back to where gold coins have the intrinsic value that they once did. I mean, we're not, we're so far beyond like trading your chickens and your cows. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't seem like we're ever going to go back to something like that. It wasn't even a year ago that I was, I was hoarding toilet paper. That's true. That could have been currency. I mean, shit happens. (laughs) Shit happens indeed with toilet paper. Um, Yeah. I was going to say, you know, it's, oh, sorry, Chase, uh, if you want to hop in. No, I'm not. I'm chewing gum. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you guys, are beyond, on the, you guys are on the vapes. I'm on the nicotine gum. <laughs> good job. Uh, but beyond, you know, apocalyptic, um, you know, nuclear war or uh, totalitarian government, which we kind of experienced over the past year. Um, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't think that we will switch to trading gold and, and bartering in that fashion. But I think that it's important to have a hedge in that arena simply because we are nearing a severe economic collapse. I know Schiff's been wrong. He's not going to be wrong forever. We are nearing it. And if you if you are concerned with, you know, bank closures and things like that, you're damn right. You want to have some precious metals on hand. Um, well, and you don't have any thing, of your money anyway. Well, one thing yeah. you can say about gold is that it has retained value across civilizational collapses, which you can't say for any fiat currency. And you can't you even can't say, say for Bitcoin yet. Because no, it hasn't existed long enough. So that, yeah. that, that's the main reason I don't like the the pushback from the crypto space against gold it's like it's like y'all have been around for a dozen years like yeah come on i mean i'm not saying that that you won't replace gold but for you to say definitively you will is a huge like it's just unbelievable hubris gold has retained value for eons and i don't you know they're they just get excited about it i I I, when i first got into yeah I think there's a fundamental question here, and I think it's why is gold valuable? Because if gold is valuable because it's very difficult to duplicate, it's very hard to inflate the market with gold by mining a bunch of it. If that's the reason that gold is valuable and not some other reason that we ascribe to it, some social construct of, oh, it's shiny or pretty or good jewelry, 
Um, then Bitcoin, you can make an argument that Bitcoin is just or potentially just as valuable as gold because, you know, it maxes out at 20 million units or whatever it is that it's, it's set to max out. So it is an anti-inflationary currency. It's not a fiat in that sense that it can just keep printing. So if you think that gold is valuable because it is like this fixed, precious, limited asset in a way that nothing else really was a better substitute throughout all of history, then you can make a case for Bitcoin being just as valuable. But if that's not the reason, then, you know, you have to be cautious too. Well, let me make the, the Austrian counter argument is that sure you cannot, I mean, I could take Satoshi's code and I could create Clint coin and I can cap it at 21 million coins. And you can make the same argument from a Clint coin that it that's has 21 to it. Clint coin. I like yeah, that. It does. No, it does. no, but that's not the argument chase made. Chase is effectively saying how long have we just been relying on the social contract around gold and not really relying, relying on any of its underlying utility. And so you can't you can't say that you could just make Clint coin. There is no social contract that has you know sort of built from the ground up in Clint coin, but it has luckily built in Bitcoin. There right. is a social contract there, going on. But People there are Satoshi's for value, but there, and there but are there, competitors. But there are competitors. That's that's my yeah, point. Yeah. Is like the yes, you have some competitors in platinum and silver and things like that for gold in terms of retaining value. Um, but you also have. I mean, there are. I think there's thousands. I know there's at least hundreds that are tradable yeah, regularly. Of, yeah. of cryptocurrencies. So it's a different thing. I mean, it just is like, I'm not saying that it, it won't replace gold in the, in the social framework and that people will perceive it that way. Like it has a very powerful network effect and it has, you know, tremendous amount of adoption. So like there, there is steam behind this, this, you know, engine. I think probably the, the but, probably the better way to think about this is not whether or not it's going to replace gold. It has a bunch of properties that gold never had. One of them is just that portability and, and that like true hardness. Um, and so it'll just be, it'll do something different. We don't actually know what, what kinds of social organizations would evolve around having that technological power yet. So it's not like, will it replace gold, you know, supersede it? it it'll just have a different function than what well, the, people normally think of as a store of value. It'll I, simply I, just be different. I totally agree. But the, that's yeah. the argument that many of them make is that Bitcoin is replacing gold. And that's why you haven't seen gold in, you know, appreciate in value very yeah. much at all even though you've had seven trillion dollars printed like you would have expected to see gold at least double in value over the past year had it well, still maintained about the inflation rate too and i think that a lot of the investors are looking at cpi and it's like that's a bullshit number yeah that's oh, what you're sure. saying that you know people don't know how to read the market because it's so manipulated i mean that's really true i mean if people were doing what they're supposed to do as, as a reaction then we'd see a lot more growth but you don't see it so that effect. And by the way, I'm invested in gold and silver, so I don't, I'm not shitting on it, but I, I have just realized, um, you know, Peter Schiff talks a lot about how it does have a lot of inherent value. And I don't think it really does not anymore. I mean, people don't. Silver is used in a lot of electronics. It is. But there's but a lot of mining infrastructure for it too. So it just gets, you know, and I think that 25% of the world's silver or something like that is in landfills. It's just thrown away with old computers and shit. So it's like, 25 percent wow it's it's high yeah the dude from wow. rich dad poor dad said that on an interview um, <laughs> i like that guy he's a, yeah i like him too but so it's interesting because you know silver's got that that use case um but at the same time we we treat it like it's worthless all, all i'm yeah. all i'm arguing for in the crypto space is humility that's all i'm yeah. arguing for I, I'm I, with you. they have a lot I of incentive to pump too because everybody's all in you well, know? yeah it's hard <laughs> I, I have money in crypto and i want to get on here and say yeah it's completely going to replace gold and everybody throw your money in uh, but you got to be honest about where it's really at. Yeah, well, you <laughs> got way, tens of thousands. Yeah, you got tens uh, of thousands of talking heads out there that are doing that every single day, and they have financial, you know, 
inclinations to do so. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's tainting the, what should be um, a really beautiful movement with, you know, short-term greed, pump and dump scams, things like that. And it's, and it damages the, the crypto space. And this, this is why but, I, I just say that. have humility, please. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Do you think Elon Musk sees everything that you just said and a lot of his behavior surrounding Dogecoin and sort of the, um, I don't know, just the general irreverence towards how, how serious the Bitcoin maxis take it um, has been to sort of inoculate everybody to this kind of shitty God. behavior? If, I wish I believed he was that calculating. I I, I honestly don't think he understands, um, you know, Bitcoin's, you know, underlying value properties. Like I, the fact that he. No, I think that's a, I, that's a big overstatement. That dude's smart. And he invented PayPal. Or I know, he didn't invent I, it, but he was like one of the co-creators of PayPal. He gets money. He gets it. Well, uh, I'm not sure. I, it, why, why would a guy that, that gets money pump Dogecoin? Like arguably the worst cryptocurrency that exists. Because it's hilarious. It's, it's hilarious. And he saw that they were taking it too seriously. I think he's like, kidding. You're railing against them taking it too seriously. And, and Elon wrong, would think, don't take it too seriously. But, but he's, so, he's costing how many young, dumb people money with his not take it seriously hey, stuff? You don't get hey, the I'm, joke. I'm that's still making loss. money on Dogecoin. <laughs> I don't know. All right, well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you though. I th- I agree with you though, Clint. I think that you know some of his behavior is can certainly fall into the reckless category. It's just very I, flippant. I wouldn't, des- I wouldn't describe yeah. his flippant behavior as a lack of understanding so much as a lack of um like being responsible. Well, when when he says that that you shouldn't be investing in in Bitcoin until they get you know their their energy consumption down for mining, I think I think that that was bizarre. Fu- that's fucking weird, man. Like that's that a lack of understanding of of what Bitcoin does. Because you know, I think he, I think he knows. I think he lied for some reason. I think he was buying the dip, to be honest. Okay, was well, he then, buying the dip, or he was getting pushback from regulators. I don't know what is going yeah. on, but I don't think well, we, we know the whole story. We can't, that. we can't well, say that he's he's a genius and that was an accident, or like you have to, you have to ascribe really bad intentions if you believe that he understands Bitcoin as well as I, I would assume he does, and and he and he understands why Dogecoin is such a fucking obvious pump and dump scam. I don't understand how he like all of this paired together paints him as a really bad actor. And I, and well, I, I'd rather not I, believe that. About I'm not him. coming out and so, well, I do like Elon, but I wasn't, I wasn't trying to defend him. I was just asking you what you thought was going on with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. There's, there's so many different ways that he handles this stuff. I'm like, I don't understand. Like it, it makes me feel as if he doesn't understand the crypto space as well as he should. But then if he's just being predatory and, you know, buying dips and things like that, then he's a fucking bad guy. So like I you know I don't know I don't know could be definitely could be pretty interesting yeah, I've got mixed feelings about it because it, I thought it was very bizarre that they came out and said that they were going to temporarily halt um, receiving Bitcoin in exchange for Teslas due to environmental concerns given what? that I don't think fiat is really any better for the environment it's not <laughs> that's the whole point and, and I don't think that not using Bitcoin is going to keep you know china from mining a ton of it like it is and i'll also their electron their electric cars that they're making right now are primarily i believe if i could be wrong uh, at least substantially fueled by electricity generated with fossil fuels right and the u.s right. military the u.s military is responsible for the most carbon production the petrodollar is the reason that we've been such a fucking dominant force militarily if if elon can't connect these dots and say like Okay, maybe getting away from fiat, no matter the elect, you know, the electricity consumption it requires to go to switch over to a Bitcoin um, service, 
Like that's weird. That's just yeah, weird behavior. You have to look at what he did. Like a week later, he capitulated. He got them all together for whatever little environmental conference they did, and they and they set some targets about him about efficiency and uh, carbon emissions. And then and then he capitulated and said, "We'll accept it again as soon as you meet that." So it's you know, yeah, yeah, I I know, but it's like that also was the kind of the tipping point from the sixty uh, level down to like crashing all the way to thirty. So. Um, you know, if he's if he's doing it for for predatory reasons, he's a bad guy. If he's if he's just a, a true believer in the the carbon emissions, the whole you know global he warming. It seems to be. I think you got to look at his track record here. He's trying to get us off the planet because he thinks it's going to burn up, and he's trying to make electric cars to keep it from burning up. I think I think he's a true believer in that. But I do think that some of the um, Tesla dumping uh, Bitcoin was motivated by kind of getting out ahead of a news cycle. I think you probably saw what was coming down the pike and they were saying, you know, Bitcoin is bad for the environment. It uses more energy than entire countries. And he's like, I can't be seen to be the fucking Tesla guy and supporting this thing that's using more energy than countries. I'm going to get out ahead of this and say, we're going to stop accepting it for right now. I, I would agree with like you if it weren't for the fact that three months prior, he was the guy who said, I'm going to accept Bitcoin. Yeah, I know. I don't know, I'm man. Like, I'm not just dead. Did, did, just he, did he discover the electric consumption over the, those 90 <laughs> days? Did he buy billions of <laughs> dollars of Bitcoin and not know about the electric consumption? Like this, there's no, just my, something My point missing. was simply that he might have been making a PR move to get out ahead of that news cycle. Right? Yeah, that I'm, he, I'm, he, he uh, very well might have. But I'm just saying, if he, if he knew that that was going to be, like he didn't know it three months prior, it's just it's just weird. I don't know. I don't know. It's it is weird. very weird. <laughs> been very entertaining. I wonder, I wonder what happened yeah. with Facebook and their token. Remember they made the Libra coin and then it never went to market after they got interrogated basically by uh, Congress in um, some uh, um, hearing. Hopefully. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember. I, I would imagine that the uh, the Federal Reserve said, hey, you know how we're financing your entire operation? You know, And the CIA came to them and they're like, yeah. hey, you know how, how we pay you trillions of dollars so that we can spy on all your users? Uh, that ends. That ends well, if you maybe, create some. Maybe that happened to Musk. Maybe they're like, listen, you know, all these environmental contracts <clears throat> right. you're getting from the federal government for Tesla. It's like if you keep pushing this Bitcoin thing, those are all going to go away. It's a distinct possibility. And that's one I do not overlook at all. Wow. Moment of silence. Yeah, yeah for, for Doge. <laughs> RIP Dogecoin investors. <laughs> I bought a Reed. little bit of it. I think it's cool. It's fun. It's just fun. Don't don't I worry. I'm not, I'm not an idiot. As long as it's just fun. As long as I want to hear fun. a Reed story because Reed, I don't know. I don't know much about you other than you have an awesome mustache. And, that uh, is all you need to know. But <laughs> <laughs> well, um, all I can say, Clint, is get ready for Freedom Fest. You're. It's weird. You're going to be a celebrity. I was a celebrity at Fork <laughs> Fest. It was strange. Like uh, I, I went up there with my dad because he lives in New Hampshire. And I said, "Hey, Dad, you know they might there might be some people who know who I am here. They're like there over two hundred people came up and shook my hand and wanted pictures, wanted autographs, and it, it was it was weird. So bring merchandise, you know, be ready. <laughs> but That's um, awesome! Congratulations! How, ma- how many shirts should I bring, man? I mean, Freedom Fest is bigger, right? Aren't there going to be tons of people there? Or? There it will be, but it won't be so Mises Caucus centric. So like, yeah, I don't it's more you know. like right wing in general, right? And it's kind of a Right. Let's so I don't even know what Freedom Fest is. Will you guys enlighten me? Yeah, Freedom Fest is just like the big annual kind of quasi-libertarian slash libertarian conservative uh, convention. Uh, Christy Nome and <laughs> Dr. Drew and uh, you know Dave Smith, Tom Woods, a bunch of people will be there talking. It's like a four or five day thing. So 
Yeah. What uh, read, read and I will be there. The last couple of months, was there was there a, was there a, or last couple of weeks was there some big news about some leadership shifts? Oh yeah, crazy. Oh, yeah. Reed, Reed can recap that if he wants. Yeah. What yeah. happened, Reed? Well, I, to answer your original question, I've been on the scene for like I started my uh, podcast actually the same month Clint did. I think it was May of last year. Um, and then we both kind of started rising at the same time. It's all been kind of funny watching um, right around the beginning of this year is when I really started taking off. Um, and uh, Dave kind of brought me to the spotlight. Uh, he I ended up becoming friends with him and he gave me a big, uh, big platform. And here I am. And I'm a, I'm a truck driver, a libertarian. I do most of my shows in my truck. It's kind of my shtick. I don't think anyone else really does that, at least live streaming on YouTube. Um, and I'm just trying to get people to, uh, open their minds, talk to each other, stop thinking so dogmatically and try to work together where we have, uh, areas of agreement. But, um, yeah. And the party, um, so basically what happened is in March, I think it was the New Hampshire libertarian party had their elections and they over, they more than doubled in size and they had a ton of new people come in from what's called the Mises caucus. And, um, they decided they were going to elect a chair who wasn't from the Mises caucus just to show crossover and good faith and everything. And she seemed kind of chill with them. So they made her the chair of the libertarian party in New Hampshire and everything seemed to be going fine. And then uh, there's a guy who was working on the social media team and he put out a few tweets. Um, one and one was, uh, what was it? John McCain's brain tumor saved more lives than Anthony Fauci. <laughs> Another one was, uh, about child labor. Uh, he put out like four or five of them and they were all very hard in the paint. And I guess the chair of New Hampshire freaked out about this. And so she decided she was just going to try to start a new New Hampshire Libertarian Party and just disaffiliate all the old members and then bring all the data from that party over to her party uh, without any due process. And then she reached out to the chair of the national party. And he said he was going to recognize the new libertarian party that she was creating as the official libertarian party of New Hampshire. And because some just, dude made some inflammatory tweets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it just uh, got more and more complicated and more and more people got in on it. And instead of admitting that, they had made a mistake. They doubled down and just kept going and going and going. And then just blew up in their faces because, of course, it was so obviously wrong. You can't just do that. You have to go through due process and everything. And well, I don't know. Parties, that's a dues paying party, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know yeah, how many that's, people. That's different. I don't know how many people have resigned now. The chair resigned. Um, a bunch of people from his area of the party resigned. The Pragmatist Caucus dissolved. <laughs> um, it was just crazy. Like, I mean, it was the best case scenario because the New Hampshire Libertarian Party got all their members back and all their data back. And then the Pragmatist Caucus disappeared. And all of these <laughs> it was the most pragmatic actors, thing to do. <laughs> yeah, all these bad actors just left. And so, I mean, it was actually the greatest thing that could have happened because everyone got exposed. Everyone showed their hand. And then, um, you know, like Spike Cohen and Justin Amash, who are not specifically Mises caucus members, they even came out and said, Hey, you guys can't do this. You know, this is, we have a process for this. You can't just disaffiliate a party because you don't like how they're speaking. So in my, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people were saying like, Oh, the libertarian party's done. We're never going to be able to unite again. And in my opinion, that was great. Like you got rid of all the, you know, all the, all the backstabbing losers. And then everyone 
who had principles kind of united and said, nope, you can't do this. And so to me, yeah. I, I thought it was all great. I don't know what you think, Clint. I can, that's what I, I can tell you from the, the outside perspective, it looks like the Libertarian Party has never been getting more attention. Maybe the Ron yeah. Paul movement, but I wasn't paying attention back then. But maybe it looks like shit on the inside. I don't know. I'm not there. But on the outside, it looks like just more and more podcasters coming up, more and more attention. Looks like it's all been uphill, you know? By yeah. the way, Reed, uh, no, Clint, you got to put your cap on, man. It's weird seeing you without it, says Rogue <laughs> Liberty Pod. I know, I know. Rogue, Rogue and the guys <laughs> always give me shit when I don't wear my hat. I don't give a fuck, Rogue. I'll look however <laughs> I want. Um, so, yeah, you were on Timcast last last week. Is he also um, Mr. Clean? Uh, he wore the beanie the forever. entire time I was there, brother. I have no idea. <laughs> I figured he did, <laughs> man. He's got he's got Voldemort like under there, man. Bro, and, and check this out. This is how this is how I know he is committed to his craft. The air conditioner went out, so it was over ninety degrees in that room because we're in the attic in his fucking mansion house thing in uh, Virginia, and he still rocked the beanie the entire time. So I was like, all right, this dude does not take it off. Period. Because like I was a branch, spoken like a branch Davidian. Right? Oh my god, that was a. T- <laughs> That was a terrible joke. state of the attic, no matter how hot it gets. <laughs> <laughs> that was that is that is one of the Damn. hardest. That's the hardest joke you can throw at libertarians. You just yeah, went there. What you think of that? <laughs> I, I appreciate the uh, the gusto with which you went there, but I I disavow I disavow this joke. Of course, of course. <laughs> it's funny because it's hurtful. Um, <laughs> I like I like that attitude. This is this is why we get along. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know, uh, you know, what, honestly, because I'm so deep in it now, like, I feel like I went from an orbiter of the libertarian space to kind of like a part of it that I can't, I can't sense if more people are paying attention to the libertarian party than they used to or not. Like they are. I have and no clue. It's Dave Smith. Great. It's, well, then because he's, he's sharing the whole thing on his shoulders. And it's yeah. like, yeah, boom. And awesome. everybody's pissed off about what happened last year, you know. So I don't think it's like dangerously dependent on Dave Smith. But well, I'll say this: I had two, I had two of Dave's biggest detractors on my show for episode 100, and they went really vicious against him, and I fucking despised it. But uh, nonetheless, the the reason I bring it up is like people were, I mean, outraged. Like th- there was there was major major pushback against these guys. So I think that that showed to me that. You know, even on, you know, Dave wasn't on my show. It was just other guys, one of them being Vin Armani or formerly Vin Armani, now Cyprian, uh, which you may or may not know, and uh, and Matt Erickson. And they were just launching into Dave. And it's like that even that can go viral. So it's like Dave is that big of a figure that a conversation about him from some detractors can now become kind of a viral uh, community discussion thing. So it's it's getting it's getting intense. I, I am a personal, you know, total believer in Dave's character. And I think that he can do great things. And I think that we need a Ron Paul 2.0. I think he can do it. I've said this a thousand times, but I just want to reemphasize that for my listeners that thought I didn't push back against uh, Vin and Matt hard enough. Um, <laughs> that's that's how I feel. So I think he's a pretty cool guy. He's he's brought me much closer to the whole libertarian thing than I ever was before. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, it's been good. Yeah, that's what I, I got that's really what we like for him. I was chatting him up to my parents the other day. I was like, "You won't believe this, but the libertarians finally have somebody who's not like totally embarrassing." I know, and, right? Uh, and he's very funny. That's the other yeah. thing, you know. You can just you can get up there and talk. He's got the gift of gab. You just keep going. You know, doesn't get totally. awkward when you're listening to him. Kind of like well, how and, and I think part of what's guys. going on too is that there are a tremendous amount of people in the United States that are Republicans because they perceive the Republican Party as the party of freedom, but that becomes increasingly obvious that it's not the case. 
And the more and more obvious that becomes, the more appealing libertarianism becomes because where else is everybody supposed to go? And I'm not a libertarian in the sense that, you know, I, I, I believe there's a place for a central central government. I'm like, a, I'm a John Locke guy. I just, I, I, I buy that argument. And so libertarian isn't like a perfect fit for me, but damn, it's a hell of a lot better than what we're doing now in the direction that we're going. And I think there's way more common ground between what I believe and what libertarians believe than there are differences. And, you know, uh, I, I I just I would like to see even if the even if the Libertarian Party wasn't elected um, uh, for major positions, I still think there's a tremendous amount of power uh, in the Libertarian Party to pull conservatives back to liberty. I yeah. hope. Yeah. So we'll see. Yes. Yeah. Right. And uh, I since you guys aren't in the Libertarian space, I'd, I want to ask you: um, Do you think that? it's a false dichotomy to think that you have to either be mellow enough to appeal to people uh, or let me, let me see, how should I frame this? Like, I'll just say, I think the best way to get votes is to be extremely principled and loud about what you believe. And I think you can do that without being autistic. You know, you can, you can like, give me an example of the autism. Okay. So do you know who Daryl Perry is? No. Um, do you remember that viral clip uh, from 2016 where Gary Johnson and uh, Austin Peterson and all the libertarians are on stage and they get asked about driver's licenses and people are flipping out about driver's licenses and Gary Johnson goes, well, you know, I think people ought to have some sort of licensing to drive. And everyone just was like, boo, boo. And everyone yeah, was screaming and everything. And, I mean, and it got, that's what everyone sees. So, Contrast that with Ron Paul, who was not at all moderate about what he believed. He didn't water down anything, but he knew how to present the message. He knew which parts would resonate with people without sacrificing any of his beliefs. Um, So do you guys think if someone can do that, if they can be extremely principled, but smart about their message, that they're also going to be more successful as a candidate than someone who kind of just comes in and is like, well, you know, we might tweak this and we'll do this and. Basically, would a libertarian one? Donald Trump sell? So, yes. so, yes. so let, let me answer this one, please. Uh, my background's in advertising. I've owned an advertising business for almost over five years now. And I've read all the advertising books. I've studied all the advertising gurus. I went back to Confessions of an Advertising Man by Ogilvy from the 50s. I mean, I am entrenched in advertising. I fucking love advertising, all right? And... One of the primary principles of advertising, which I don't think the Republicans apply to politics in the same way that the Democrats do, which is why the Democrats win, is that people make buying decisions emotionally and they justify later logically, right? <laughs> and our problem is true. our problem is we are so focused, libertarians and conservatives alike are so focused on having the best argument that we just totally disregard the emotional side of the debate. So like I see like Elizabeth Warren and some of these other Democratic candidates, and they say that dumbest shit ever but it's way more emotionally appealing right like you know billionaire jeff bezos his, his wealth increased 300 percent last year meanwhile you know the average american spent 25 percent of their income on taxes like that makes an emotional case but it's obviously it's more complicated than that right so so the it depends on what the zeitgeist is. this is why it's so hard it's not a fixed problem with one solution it depends on what the spirit of the times is right so when hitler came to power in the late 20s 30s we're seeing 30 percent unemployment in germany and everybody even though they're wrong all the native germans think it was the jews fault that they lost world war one and that dude came up there and without any sort of 
actual logical argument was so appealing emotionally because he resonated so well with the zeitgeist that he was able to become a dictator within just a few years of having sort of a minority office in government, right? And we saw the same thing with, with Obama, for example, right? He, he never really even said anything. It was just hope and change, right? People just wanted hope and change after 2008. And with Trump, for example, you know, he had his own brand. He brought his own brand to the, to the presidential election. People didn't vote for him because he was a Republican. They voted for him because he was Donald fucking Trump. And so I think if libertarians want to see success, um, they're, they're going to have to have a candidate, like maybe like a Dave Smith, right? He, the reason he's so badass is because his brand is awesome. He was on Joe Rogan. He didn't sound like a dumbass. He was cool. He looked good. He looks like a celebrity. And uh -huh. he's not bought by anybody. He's not full of shit, like in the same way that all these politicians are. So I think we need to focus on we need to focus on understanding what the, the zeitgeist is, what the spirit of the times is. And then how can we brand candidates or make candidates very conscious of that and aware of that? And every single thing they utter, publish, produce, do has to be with that in mind in order for it to work. This, this is why I think Dave is such a phenomenal candidate, actually, because he does everything you just said naturally. And, right. and and what That's makes him deal. so special is that in this moment, people don't want buttoned up, you know, classical politician looking dudes. They want right. they want people that go out there and say bad words sometimes. You know, Donald Trump did it quite a few times on the campaign trail. Um, I think that that's what makes Dave really, really great and, and why I think that he will he will catch fire because he like he has he. I really believe that he's tapped into the zeitgeist. Like we are no longer interested in militarism as a, as a country. We hate it. Like even the conservatives now are like, no, I don't want mm -hmm. to go to war with Iran. I don't want any more wars. No, thank you. Pull us, pull our troops home. Like that is a huge shift. And I think, and coincidentally, much of that zeitgeist began with the Ron Paul mo moment in 2008. And now it's carried on through Donald Trump. And now I feel like Dave Smith can carry on that, that torch and mm -hmm. and lead the way and then Funny additionally about, oh go ahead sorry oh i was just gonna say additionally the the and the reason that i got involved the reason my show was called liberty lockdown is because there was no politician that was railing against the lockdowns like they should have been dave smith yeah. has been doing that since day one and he will do that on the campaign trail he will he will assure no lockdowns will ever happen again now will that make him alienated to the left sure some of them some of the more diluted ones but my hope is that as you get further and further away from COVID and the lockdowns, that we will have more and more analysis of what we did to ourselves in that period. And even those that were horrified and believed wholeheartedly that the lockdowns were necessary, some of them will start to question those assumptions. And I think that he can play off of that and even grab some from the left to add to his base. So all the way around, I agree with your entire analysis, Chase. I thought it was brilliant. Um, and I Thanks. think that Dave fits that mold. Yeah, I think the... You know, when, when it comes to reaching the left, they don't actually like it when you pander to them or when you're soft. I mean, a lot of leftists really liked Ron Paul and they didn't like Rand Paul. They were like, Ugh. you know, even though he wasn't quite as extreme as his dad, they were just like, I don't know. Very non-threatening about Ron Paul. Ron Paul is basically the same brand as Bernie Sanders. They just have completely opposite policy views. And, and it's funny because you see the same demographic support Ron Paul that supported Bernie Sanders. It's like young college kids, right? And mm -hmm. I just think that's really interesting. kind of goes to back the point that people are resonating with the brand emotionally and not really policies logically. Yeah, I think what Bernie has done, though, is proven that he's just a complete fraud. 
I mean, he's not a he's not a socialist. He's a corporatist. He's a warmonger. I mean, all his all his rhetoric is just rhetoric. If you look at his voting record and who he urge, uh, who he urges all his supporters to vote for, I mean, he's his, his endorsements much- alone should have made uh, him just be yeah. pilloried by his supporters. What a scumbag! So, so those yeah, go vote for the Hillary. DNC stole the election. The DNC yeah. stole the election. I mean, Donald him. Trump yeah. is more anti-establishment than Bernie, and he was the president. You know, that's pretty <laughs> bad. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think those hardcore fans are sick of being lied to. They're sick of having someone who talks the talk and then at every turn doesn't walk the walk and just you know bends over and does whatever the establishment wants. And, you know, that that goes for Trump supporters too. a lot of Trump supporters that really believed in Trump, uh, that stimulus bill right before Christmas last year, where he looked like he was going to veto it and he stood up and then he ended up just caving and signing it. And then he didn't do anything about Julian Assange or Edward Snowden. You know, he lost a lot of people there, too. So people are sick of people. They're sick of leaders who tell them one thing and then do another. So someone like Dave who has a record of always saying what he thinks all the time. You know, I've been in lots of private messages with him. Whatever he says to me privately, he ends up saying later in public. That means a lot. I mean, because it's easy to talk to your friends and be like, oh, man, this is how I think. And then you go out there and say something completely different. He doesn't do that. Uh, so I, I'm with Clint. Like, I think uh, I think Dave's the man. You know, I used to be kind of sympathetic toward Amash. And I, I like Amash. He's OK, but he's not a zeitgeist at all. And, uh, you know, it's just like trying to force a shoe that doesn't fit. Um, Dave actually gets it. He gets how people feel and he tells the truth all the time. That's what we need. Yeah. And I I think the one thing that he's going to have to do is he's going to have to understand and realize that maybe he already does that there's half the country that is passionate about freedom and there's the other half of the country that's passionate about safety. Right. And these are loose generalizations, but it's it's really true. And it's been it's it's played out that way the last year or two or the last year as well with people freaking it's, out. At, at there's a fair argument that there's more than half that are concerned with safety more than they are. Right. And so and so the challenge with the Libertarian Party as a whole, has, which has been a challenge historically. And Dave is going to have to face if he runs as a serious candidate, is that we have to figure out a way to frame freedom as not antithetical to compassion. So there's this idea, this feeling that libertarians are like, I don't give a fuck about you. I'm just doing my thing and I got my guns and I'm going to protect my property and my family. And if you're disabled, then you can go to hell. Right. And so we I don't know what the solution is, but we have to figure out a way to make the opposition see that freedom is actually more just see that freedom is actually safer see that freedom is actually going to help those who are most vulnerable more than these other government entities or programs that we've been trying to push for the past 50 years because all i'm going to say is the democrats have been in power for a hell of a long time and things seem to keep getting worse for the most vulnerable among us and better for the wealthiest among us. And it's not because of capitalism and it's not because there's too damn much freedom in this country. It's because there's too damn much government. Well, this is exactly why the the black vote increased for Donald Trump um, is because people are starting to realize that they've been lied to for so many decades. And they're like, wait a second, you know, the guy that the, that you've been telling us is a racist Hitler reincarnate is doing more for the black community than <laughs> all of these leftists that promised us shit for the past 50 years. Yeah, yeah, that's the truth. And and what you're what you're really describing is that we're going to we're going to have to break the monopoly on emotional appeals that the left holds. And mm-hmm. and I think that Dave can do that because he can he speaks with passion and fire and and concern for the the nation and for the people. And that's that will that will 
cross over. Like people will feel that. And I think that it's really important because, um, you know, I think that's why Ron was actually really successful too, is that like, yeah, you're right. He didn't come across as a dangerous person. He didn't come across as, as, a, you know, probably vicious as Dave can be at times. Um, but his passion for Liberty and his, his, his belief in the beauty of it and the, you know, just the beneficial nature of it for everyone involved shine through to anybody. I mean, it reached Dave. Dave exists because of Ron Paul. Dave was a leftist before Ron Paul. So like, this is, this is what can happen again. And I really, I believe it's going to happen. Like we are on the precipice of this happening and I am fucking thrilled because we literally don't have a minute to spare. Like this shit is going to fall apart. So God willing, we wake some people up. Yeah. I really hope Dave spends as much time as possible lifting up more podcasters. Cause from my perspective, the biggest roadblock to, yeah, it's true. Um, my perspective, the biggest roadblock for most ordinary people that are not in the liberty movement and just sort of been watching it from the outside, the biggest roadblock from them is not any particular candidate, but just sort of not knowing what exactly the liberty movement stands for. Uh, what are the principles? They don't understand the benefits of it. So you, they do. It just comes across as I don't give a shit if somebody hits you with their car. They don't need a driver's license, and we should have open borders, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, it's like, you know. Well, and the big and so, one they hit Ron Paul with was, "Would you are you in favor of legalizing heroin?" And he's, yeah. he, it's like, how do you respond to that without looking reckless? Like, well, like, I guess of are you in favor? Well, he handled it well. He just said, "Yes, yes, I am," and <laughs> it kind of worked for him. Actually, yeah, I mean, Republicans guys in like South us, Carolina but, cheered for him. So, well, no, he yeah. he asked he asked the audience. He said, "Raise your hand if, yeah. if heroin was legal. Would you would do you it do tomorrow?" It? And they and no one raised their hand. And he said, "Exactly, yeah. exactly right." So even on the fly, this dude can still make the the principled libertarian argument without sounding like a lunatic. So. Yeah. I think Dave can do the same thing. And to your point about him uplifting podcasters, you're talking to two of them. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, myself yeah. No. and Reed, my, myself it's and Reed have been helped guys. out tremendously. He hasn't and, said shit about me because I'm a statist. Well, he he probably doesn't know about you yet, but hang in there, hang in there. You just started. Uh, yeah. So so I I think that you're right. I think that that is necessary. And as we get bigger and we can get onto bigger platforms, like the problem is, is that you know we're still largely speaking to our our own audience. Like that's right. We're, yeah, that's we're not at the level where where you know outsiders are hearing us. But give us time. I mean, I I am like dedicated to becoming the Timcast, the the JRE experience of the libertarian space. Like we need it. We have to have a, a a bigger umbrella that allows more people to fucking know what we actually believe in. And most importantly, we have to allow them to understand that the, the blue-pilled libertarians that actually exist in, in power don't represent the libertarian movement. They really don't. Like, no disrespect to Amash, but his whole thing with Trump and the impeachment was a fucking disaster because it demonstrated that he didn't identify that the deep state was against that presidency and that they were trying to sink him. And I think that was a huge mistake because you had this opportunity with 75 million people that are now, you know, disenchanted with democracy. Now, now you have, you want to have Justin Amash represent the libertarian party, the guy who pushed for impeachment of Trump. No, thank you. That's not going to fucking work. Whereas Dave spent a full year and a half demonstrating definitively how corrupt that investigation was. So I think he is the perfect guy to do it. Yeah. When I really uh, started separating myself from Amash was on January 6th, just the way he and so many people in the Libertarian Party reacted to that. It was yeah, that, that too. Terrible. Yeah. I, mean, I had, I had, uh, I had such mixed feelings. Um, I didn't. <laughs> I was, I was watching it. I was watching it live. Yeah. And uh, I was like, 
hell yeah like this is awesome you know like the buffalo costume the the horns man no not the horns i that was the part that part wasn't when i was watching live it was more like people screaming at the cops and like you know i just like i was so inspired by it like on an emotional level seeing nick fuentes say fuck the police you know it was like yeah (laughs) that type of stuff but (laughs) exactly right but but you know, it was like the rage against the machine in me. You know, like the like the sixteen year old in me that was like, "Fuck you! I won't do what you tell me." You know, yeah. I was like rocking that in my, back in my mind. But then, like, I thought about it. I'm like, man, like this is really, really going to come back to hurt the conservative movement. And then on the third hand, what really pissed me off was how everybody, all the leaders that were going to um, uh, object to the certification of the election. Uh, you know, it's a symbolic gesture, but they were going to do it out of concerns for election integrity. They mm-hmm. all buckled because of January 6th, as if January 6th had anything to do post facto with what happened in November. And so I just it just became very clear to me that both parties, the leadership of both parties, they're just sellouts and they pander and they do what's politically convenient, not really yes. based on principle at all. And so, you know, I think that it was inappropriate the way that people behaved on the 6th. Uh, and I think that, you know, there were some Antifa instigators. I think the FBI was involved as well. Yeah. But I think there were some Trump, Trump supporters that crossed the line. But it was by no means an insurrection. And, no, I mean, I, it, I thought it was just dumb, the whole thing. Because what are you going to do once you get in there? Yeah, and yeah. what do you expect the response to this to be? But when Nancy Pelosi had to go on lockdown for the first time during the whole pandemic, that felt like justice. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, it. It, it felt good for a couple of minutes, but this anti-terrorism bill that's just come out, I mean, oh, I call that the day of yeah. January 6th. I, I mean, you guys can go back and watch my live stream. I was like, just watch. They're going to use this to try to push gun control or anti-domestic terrorism laws. Like, this was the dumbest move that these guys could have made, and they screwed us all. I mean, you know, they, they probably would have tried it anyway, but they didn't have the political ammo that they have now because they did that, and they didn't accomplish anything. You know, all they got... No, totally I, right. I mean, well, all they got right. was, you know, political ammo for the other side, but... Although, yeah. I, I mean, I was tweeting out, like, you know, I, I love the... I think they had a guillotine and a noose, and I, I wanted to see, you know politicians getting beheaded personally that's what i was hoping for i didn't get that far so and we're banned let me let me make the the only yeah. pro argument for for one six since no one else has here um i i think that it's it's a big mistake for the conservatives to look at that as as a, a negative because ultimately the the left dominated all you know civil uh disobedience over the those 12 months that was the only time you guys did. And and what did it show you? It showed you that the left will have charges dropped against them and you yeah. guys will have the book thrown against you. I yeah. think that's we won't stand by our people. The, the U.S. government is literally holding conservatives as political pr- prisoners right now. Exactly. And no one's and, standing up for them. I, that, yeah, we get that. But, that, but that's, important. Right that's important. The correct buildings, you know, like they were going yeah. after they were going after the Capitol where they yeah. were going to vote. They weren't burning down their local Arby's or whatever, you know. I mean, they're, yeah, they're that's true. Right? They, so. they rock with some spirit of 1776 on that one, and, and I I respected the hell out of it. So now now can you have a, a pragmatic you know argument as to whether or not it's you know efficacious? Sure, you can. But I I really think that you know anyone that believes that 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 Biden and, and company weren't going to roll out uh, anti, you know, domestic terrorism bill, regardless of what happened that day. I mean, there was no one that too. died that day other than Ashley Babbitt. That's the yeah. truth. So yep. 
So what did it matter? No, it didn't. It didn't well, matter because they were going to do this anyways. I think it does a little bit because, you know, they were going to do vaccine passports anyways, but there was just so much social pushback against it that they didn't do it. So, I mean, the the social acceptance of these things does matter to a point. I know we are not the government, but we sort of allow the government to become what it becomes. You know, I mean, oh, there yeah, is sure. there is but this the, power. But isn't Look, January 6th a great example of us not allowing the government to, to persist? Like, I think that that's you have to show that there is a limit at which you will start to do radical shit. Like, I'm not advocating for radical shit. I'm just saying that if you don't ever have that limit, if you don't ever make them concerned for their safety, why should they be concerned? Why should they stop? Like, I think that that. Yeah, they got, they got nukes and F-15s. Why should they be concerned? Well, yeah, so I mean, that's Biden's argument. You said that, you know, the only their kryptonite is if you have a buffalo headdress, that's what can take them out, I guess. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but unbelievable. And not to mention the fact that I think every war that we've been in, starting with Vietnam, we've pretty much lost, and none of our opponents had F-15s or nuclear bombs. So it's like, yeah. And, <laughs> it's and it also a wasn't reckless a civil war. It also wasn't a civil war with nukes. You're going to nuke your own people where, where yours, yeah. your troops are stationed all around them? Like it's, I, it's I always crazy. make this point that everybody imagines that the first thing that will happen if they try and put down the insurrection is that the actual U.S. Army will roll down the streets in tanks. But if you look around at how things progress towards tyranny over time, it doesn't, it's not just soldiers that come in. It's your neighbor right. starts tyrannizing you first and ratting you out to the cops. You need your. Oh, yeah. I hate to say this. I'm not going to shoot my neighbor, everybody. Jack, I'm not shooting my neighbor. But you need your. You need your AR-15 for your damn neighbor, and and the mob of people that live in your neighborhood that are going to start. You know, that try and send you off to the gulag. It's not the cops and the, and the military. Maybe eventually it's the military. That's why. That's why but, no totalitarian government can do it with military force alone. They have to yeah. have. They all. They have to sow division within the people. If there's right. no division within the people, they go away. If there's or division they, of the people, we go away. So we have to find some way to come together and realize that we aren't each other's enemies just because we believe in different economic models or whatever the fuck else. The people that have the power, the people that have the printing press are the actual enemy. Those are the people yeah. that you need to be fucking scaring the shit out of. Stop yelling at your neighbor because they're not woke enough. You pussy. Yeah. Uh, the other <laughs> thing they've done, though, is they've made it so the guns don't. I mean, you cannot tell me the Second Amendment really matters anymore. I mean, after the last year... And we have, what, half a billion guns in this country, maybe? And our insurrection has a few handguns, and the cops are the only ones that end up firing. I didn't even know there were handguns. I, I think I like, you, there were some in some pictures, like the guy farting on Nancy Pelosi's desk. He's got one in his belt. And I mean, but there, there was like, I mean, there was no resistance. There was that little bit of a, um, of a, uh, protest at the Michigan Capitol building, I think. But that was all that really happened. I mean, no one did anything. So, I, I think if they actually go after the guns, they're going to be poking a hornet's nest. I think if they're smart, they'll be like, hey, look at these idiots. We can take literally everything except their guns and they will still think they're free. You know, so let's let them keep their guns and then we can tap their phone. We can lock them down. We can bail out ourselves, keeping them in their houses. Like you know, to me, they won't, they won't they, just seize them. They'll, they will, they will just, they'll, they'll create very lucrative buyback programs and they'll make it very difficult to get new guns. So I think that what they're going to, in my opinion, what they're probably going to try to do is just get it so that it's so um, uh, enticing for mm -hmm. a majority of gun owners to just sell it back to the state. Um, like, well, like you, what Australia did, right? If you, instead of declawing a tiger, if you just put him in a cage or a big cage where he feels like he's still in charge, 
<laughs> you're not going to go in with flyers to declaw them, you know? Like, why? Why bother? I mean, that's what they've that's, done to us. Like, this they, is this is why Reed and I, I think, agreed that Trump's presidency was kind of a disaster during the the lockdowns because he pacified the tiger. The tiger right. was the conservatives that had had it been right. Hillary Clinton that said, yeah. "Hey, all you conservatives that believe in liberty." You have to stay home for a year and close your business and go I bankrupt. Imagine they, they they would have been like, "Oh fuck you, bitch!" <laughs> no, yeah. So yeah, he, the fact he that he was going to have he four was more years, he thought he was going to have four more years to fix it, and he didn't take any risks in the, during the election, and um, and ultimately uh, it was the wrong call. I think I think he should have been taking a lot more risks and and been a lot more principled in the way You're that he led. Absolutely right. I loved the ads that were Trump was president, and the ads were saying, "This is Biden's America." It's like. This is literally your America, Trump. Like you are president <laughs> right now, <laughs> and like you saw the "Keep America Great" logo go away. It went back to "Make America Great Again." I don't know if anyone. So, else what should he have that. done? Should he have, should he have just sent in the National Guard to to quell these um, these uh, uh, protests at these major cities? I mean, that had, would have been had he not allowed too. the lockdowns, I don't think we have what yeah. we saw over the summer. So, it, he point. he holds the responsibility for putting Fauci in power and listening to that fucking liar and letting us have all of our liberties stripped away. And then you have all of these people who are now getting you know, government stipends to stay home and not work that are like, oh, someone got killed and I saw it on the internet and now there's people on the street and I have nothing to do. I don't think this shit even gets to that point if it, if it weren't for the lockdown. So I think that yeah. that was his, by far, if, that, if he had not locked down this country, I think he'd still be president. That's so I'll take opinion. it a little bit, I'll take it in a slightly different direction. I largely agree. I think he shouldn't have gotten involved with the lockdowns. He should have said, "Governors, you've got to figure it out." But you're going to be responsible. That's kind of what he did, stimulus. though. Well, no, he gave advice. Hang on. Oh, he, he didn't have the stimulus caveat. Yeah, he didn't have the stimulus caveat because they would have been much more judicious with their lockdowns. They wouldn't have locked down when it was economically impractical um, if they knew that they were on the line for the money. And there wasn't totally. just stimulus. There was like the Federal Reserve was buying municipal bonds, right? Like for cities down to two hundred fifty thousand citizens or something crazy like that. I mean, it was. It was yeah. way beyond just the stimulus bills, plus, too. Yeah. yeah, plus the federal, you know, addition to the unemployment, so that made it so that it was like more profitable to not work for a huge amount of young people, and those right. that huge I, amount I of young people all of a sudden I couldn't hire anybody. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't hire anybody. I swear to God, still, people were saying I'm getting more money from, and I was offering like twenty, twenty-five bucks an hour part time, and they're like, "Sorry, I can't take it." It's still a problem to this day. I mean, this is all a product of the Federal Reserve, but Trump in his position of power, had the capacity to really put the brakes on it. Or at least, uh, and I've said this from the jump, like even if you believe that the president is toothless, which I think largely they are, um, he could have gone out every, like, you know how, you remember during the summer when he was doing those daily press briefings with Fauci by his side? He could have gone out every day saying, any governor that, uh, that locks down, like especially after he realized it was bullshit, because I think he realized it was bullshit like three months in, if he had just gone out and said, any government that, that, that persists with these lockdowns unnecessarily, I am going to uh, remove federal funding from your state. Like he could have, and, or he could have threatened it, or he could have just gone out there and said, every day he has a press conference and he says, this isn't the American way. This isn't what we do here. Yeah. And if he just kept going out there and saying that, he would have had my vote and he didn't get my vote. Like, yeah. And I know there's a lot of people that were fucking furious about the lockdowns that would have voted for him, even though I hated a bunch of things about him, if he had just you know, strongly advocated against it. So that was his failing, in my opinion. And the thing that bo bothers me so much about the lockdowns is, you know, on one hand, it makes sense from a pragmatic standpoint that, you know, if there's a if there's a viral crisis, you know, lockdowns make sense. But on the second hand, on the other hand, it's like, 
if there was if people were really afraid of this pandemic, you wouldn't have to mandate them to lockdown. Like exactly. if, if if my brother or if, if Andrew died of COVID, I would have stayed home. You know, we're the same age, we're the same guy, basically, right? I would have been like, I'm not going anywhere regardless of whether or not there was a mandate. And I think the reason that the lockdowns were so controversial is because this pandemic was so vanilla in terms of its, like, danger and risk. And it was so obvious early on who was actually at risk and who wasn't in terms of, like, old, obese, whatever, that it was it was just stupid that we were locked down at all. I mean, you're telling me that I can't go to church and I have, like, a less than half a percent a chance of dying if i get covid and i may not even get it it's just it was just so ridiculous well, not, not to mention the states that didn't have lockdowns early on we saw the exact same numbers when it came to like uh, uh foot traffic and, and vehicle traffic people were already taking the precautions necessary before the government came in and said hey take these precautions because we were scared I, to death That's i don't true. know about that man I, well i was i was here in florida during spring break and the 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 twenty-something-year-olds were out on the boats, just raging and pouring beer down each other's throats and spreading COVID like yeah, crazy. Yeah, but twenty-year-olds were dying. No, but they were dying. That's the thing. But we didn't know. Remember, you got to remember back at that time, no one really had any idea whether or not this thing was going to be so bad that it overwhelmed the hospital system. So a major argument wasn't that everyone's going to die. It's that there's actually some critical capacity to the hospitals, and if we reach that, then you're going to die of cancer because every, all the beds are going right. to be taken. Remember that yeah, period that where making that argument? I mean, I, I agree that we were close. We didn't know. But that, we I think that know. happens every year. That happens every year during the flu season. It was just bullshit. Yeah, was because because it was supposed to be every two weeks right? to slow the spread. And then, you know, we still have places that are like I'm, so I'm so saying, I agree. Some of it was in hindsight. But if you actually look yeah. at the states that didn't lock down versus those that did, you still yeah. had very comparable uh, infection rates as well as fatality rates. It's just, it's just nonsense. The states that locked down the hardest actually had worse fatality rates, including New York, which was like, a fucking the death the epicenter of death and, and they were that was largely because it was centrally planned because you had the governor orchestrating having the elderly housed with covid patients it was it was psychotic and like all you had to do was allow people to make their own decisions they would have made much better decisions this is the this is the power of the free market this is why we believe in capitalism because we believe that having decentralized decision making creates the best outcome and why would we not believe that during a pandemic? It makes no sense. It's counter to, to what we believe fundamentally. So mm -hmm. it's just, I mean, the evidence well, demonstrated and, it and, too. And if you allow people to make their own decisions, then it eliminates the culpability of any central government. It's like, right. that's right. You go it's out not and you get sick. It's not my fault. Right. right yeah. and, and Trump, but now Trump attempted when that. It, there, was, there were so many regulations that whenever anybody dies, people are pointing fingers at leaders yeah. and politicians. It's like, you know, if we would have just been hands off, then all the deaths would have been whoever, you know, whatever decision they made or just, you know, tra natural tragedy, but not actual bureaucratic culpability. So yeah. I got a question for you guys. Um, Whenever there's a social rift, when something like this is going on, I always have my eyes open looking for, um, you know, some ulterior motives. So if you look at all of the money that I'm has been to... spent throughout the last year, like going to giant corporations, going to overseas governments, going to pet projects, um, most people were not talking about that at all. We were talking about masks. And I felt like they knew masks were bullshit earlier than you know i mean super early on but they realized the social rift that was causing and i'm not saying masks don't matter like I, I don't like masks and i think it's had an effect on young children that's been bad but compared to all the upward transfer of wealth that's been going on the masks are kind of a dumb thing that i felt like they really wanted to distract us with and they saw that conservatives hated them Liberals loved them. They saw how religious it got. So I feel like they really pushed the mask thing just to get us to fight about that 
instead of you know well you got to keep in mind too bailouts that what they were able to do was they were able to brand the mask as a political statement right and this is this is what the democrats do that's so smart and they do it all the time and so when you're out in public and you see everyone wearing a mask, there's just kind of this undertone that, you know, maybe they're voting for Biden. Right. And right. I, I think that it was a political, I think it was a campaign move. If, if nothing else, I think at first, you know, there was like, Hey, we don't know enough about this virus. Just wear a fucking mask. And then it became so political that the Democrats just rode with it. And then they started having people wear two masks, even though there's no reason behind it. And it was just to show, it was like walking around with a campaign sign. I mean, you might, Towards the end there, you might as well have been wearing a Biden T-shirt if you were wearing a mask. In my yeah, point. I mean, but now, like, we're getting to the point where mask mandates are ending. People aren't wearing masks anymore. And so then everyone's like, yay, everything's back to normal. And it's like, no, I mean, the masks weren't the worst thing that has happened yeah. over the last year. There's been way more damage that's going to take forever to recover from. So it's almost like it was just, hey, why don't you guys squabble about this? And then we're going to, you know, facilitate all this crazy uh <laughs> wealth transfer and you guys are going to forget about it and you're not even going to remember it after it's over. I don't know. It's, but. it's definitely um, performative symbology. Like they, because uh, if you read Fauci's emails or if you just listen to the motherfucker back in April, he right. said, you don't need a mask. It's not going to save you because mm-hmm. he understands, you know, how this stuff works, you know, like, and then, and then all of a sudden he, ch- he changes his tune and then it's one mask and it's two mass and it's uh, three, four, whatever. And, and then he shifts back to like, Okay, well, you know, as as soon as he's being skewered by Rand Paul, he's like, well, of, of course, a mask isn't going to protect everybody. I mean, I, no one ever said that. I never lied about that. Yeah. And it's like the guy, the guy's been on every side of this topic, so you can no longer pin him down. So to me, what it adds up to is obvious political gamesmanship, and and I don't I don't know, you know, like the exact intention. I think you're right that it was certainly a distraction, um, but it was a, it and. It was a good one to use because it was important. I mean, yeah. it was for anyone that values freedom. It felt like you were being muzzled, and and I completely understood it. Like I I was viscerally upset all year because I, so, I live in California. It was so symbolic. You have to admit, like putting it over your mouth. Yeah, right. Yeah. You want to bitch about it, and you've got this thing over your mouth. It was like the right. perfect symbolic thing to muzzle. Yeah, like a muzzle. Yeah, right. and then and then I'm I'm going to the gym, and like I I basically every st- I'm in Southern California, so everywhere I went. For basically an entire year, I saw no one's face. I mean, that yeah. is a that is a crippling psychological weapon that you're using. On yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. think it was. I didn't think it would, but it really did get to me psychologically toward the end there. Um, Fuck yeah! yeah. It, it, it's subtle how it cre- kind of creeps on you, but there's like this sort of like drudgery sort of depression that just kind of creeps up after you don't see people for a year or look at their face and you have all these rules like definitely there was a psychological impact and i'm not you know convinced that it was necessarily intentional but it was definitely a symptom of the the policy decisions that were made I, and it was i think the, the fact that it was persistent the fact that they continued with it that's where i get to the point of like okay this is this is a decision that you're making consciously because you now have. I would, totally, I would totally agree with you, but uh, you know th- this sort of like conspiratorial mind that they, it, it was it was run of the mill everyday Democrats down the street from me that were pumping it. It wasn't just Fauci. They believed they were. It was the social taboo of taking it off because my neighbors don't like it. Yeah, but they the don't point. have to reinforcing it. They don't but have the, to orchestrate that with a network of agents or something. They just create yeah. mindsets. And then those yeah. mindsets are just triggered like this. So you can be like, oh, hey, yeah, it's, it's trigger, 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 trickle down that, idealism. 
Yeah, well, it's, exactly. it's, it's all about scientism. I mean, they 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 worship. They talked about Fauci. Like they they painted him with fucking wings and shit. Like they deified <laughs> this man over the past year. So of course, it doesn't take a, a grand conspiracy. It takes one guy who's been given the authority to tell everybody what to do. And the left loves authority figures. And he was the top guy. So when he said it, that's all. It, that's all that was required. I don't think it's like a grand conspiracy. I think you could have you know, five people in the political sphere that sit down and they say, hey, we can do X, Y, Z, and we're going to have, you know, million, half the country is going to do this yeah. gleefully. And, yeah. and they will they will talk shit to anybody who goes who gets out of line with it. And then, I mean, it's it, it goes deep, man. It goes really deep. So have you yeah. guys read uh, Orwell and Huxley? That's Brave New World and 1984. Okay. So like, I, read both. Uh, I haven't read 19- Huxley yet. I need to still. So. Yeah. Oh, that, so in awesome. 1984, it's like this oppressive government that just controls every single thing you do every day is always spying on you, always monitoring you where brave new world. They're more hands off. They're just like, if you give people what they want, then they won't give a shit about anything and you can take their rights away and they won't even notice. I'm always way more weary when the government tries the uh, brave new world stuff. Cause the 1984 stuff just doesn't last. Like people get sick of it after a while. They're like, fuck this. I'm not doing this anymore. If they can convince you that they're there to help you, which was like the $600 stimulus payments or, you know, right. um, the, if they can make a, like a, a fake enemy that they're scaring you with and telling you that they're protecting you from it. That is always way more effective than trying to subjugate you through a boot on your neck so, like, the mask thing, I don't know. I mean, I didn't like it at all, but it just never, even though it bothered me, I was like, this just isn't going to last. People are going to, they're going to shuffle it off eventually. They're not going to take it. It's the it's the stuff where they can convince you that they are, that they are helping you or they're making your life better. That type of the, stuff the, always. The most galling one going on lately is Joe Biden opening up the economy and giving us back yes. this booming economy. Thank yeah. you so much. Job creation. You so much. You know? kicking your boot <laughs> off my neck. Stuff. Yeah, it's exactly. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's that. It's also MMT. It's making people feel like they have, you know, wealth that's imaginary. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have critical race theory, which I know has become this hot topic that uh, there's a huge amount of disagreement as to how serious it is. I think it's very serious. I think if you're teaching children that like there are enemies all around you, that's a fucking terrible uh, principle yeah. for for a well, young he, child to. Here's you know, the come deal. Here's the deal. Critical race theory itself is, in my opinion, a fad, but installing the psychological thought process of oppressor versus oppressed that's permanent. And the problem that the Republicans are the, the 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 issue the mistake the Republicans are making is that they're just attacking critical race theory from a race standpoint by saying it's racist. And what they're doing is they're just saying, "Look, your teachers are oppressing you by lying to you." So it's actually still Marxist. It's just the inverse Marxism in the argument. And so, and so, in my opinion, it's like we need to be attacking oppressed versus oppressor and installing individual responsibility and freedom in the minds not so much i don't think you give them enough credit i think a lot of parents are aware of what they're pushing back at those pta meetings i've heard the i've heard marxism tossed tossed around quite a lot i actually think critical race theory is one of the best things not critical race theory itself but it's one of the best things that's happened to conservatives and and libertarians in quite a while because the left so massively overplayed their hand that it woke up all the bombs i mean it's been a slow march through the institution 
for a long time now and parents just going to those PTA meetings and not paying attention to anything that's going on. And then they went and they fuck with their kids and they put a bunch of crazy people in charge of the, these people's kids. And now all the moms are awake to it. And yeah, they're not getting the word critical race theory quite right. We're having this stupid parsing of what critical race theory actually stands for, but it doesn't really matter. All the moms saw the curriculum. Everyone's seen the stupid videos of the kids getting you know, harassed by their teachers and it's woken everybody up to it. And we have all this legislation. Some of it's good. Some of it's not going to be that good. But it doesn't really matter. Really, it's the first victory we've had in a while because the left like severely overplayed their hand. And that, yeah. to me, that's a positive. I think that's, that's a compel- there's a compelling argument there. I'm just saying that I'm not. I'm concerned that it's too late. That you've already gotten too many of the the young people. Because I mean, this is not new. Like they, they may be for like formalizing and giving it uh, yeah. you know, a term that a brand that people identify. But you have had for a decade now. People coming out of Ivy League colleges that are fucking deeply immersed oh, in this ideology. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those people are now in corporate America. They're they're responsible for HR. The reason our advertising is fucking telling me that I'm evil for being white and straight. <laughs> yeah. Like this Did is the reason that this all NFL exists. Is gay. Did yeah. you see that one today? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like all all the way across the board, it's just a, it's a trend. I like I agree with you. I'm fucking grateful that it's happened now and people have, have caught on. But this has been a trend that has persisted for quite some time, and it's like I'm just concerned that that it may be too late. That this is like this will be the dominant um, ideology moving forward. I pray to God not, because I will absolutely leave this country if this is what I have to live with for the rest of my life. I think we're gonna we're in for a rough ride, but I do have a lot of faith in Americans. I've seen some incredibly based people on Twitter. That do not give a yeah. fuck about this stuff. You know, it's hardening. It's hardening to see people that are just not. You can't cow them. They're, you call them a racist and a homophobe, and they go fuck you. And you're like, <laughs> oh yeah, thank God. You know, no, those, still those, pe- those people get it for sure. Yo, I I yeah. have not eaten since noon. I am dying. Right. I gotta run. Um, thank we you can, guys. We can call it a night. We can call it a night. This might be a good uh, stopping point. Okay, it was okay. awesome having you guys on. It was super fun. Yeah, uh, yeah I was do this blast. again sometime. I, I could do this for three hours, honestly, God, I but know, I, I am so hungry. I'm about to fall over. Go eat something, bro. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> nice meeting you. Yeah, great to great to meet you. And thank you guys for having me on. If you want to follow me, go to uh, Liberty Lockdown on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, everywhere else, and at Liberty Lockpod on Twitter. Thank you. Reed, thanks for joining us too. Where can everybody follow you? Yeah, I'm the only Reed Coverdale and the only naturalist capitalist in the world. So if you search that anywhere, you'll find me. I'm on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and yeah, on Anchor. So Apple, uh, Spotify, all the places you can find podcasts. Look for me there. Reed's awesome. a man. Follow his shit. Well, that, thank you guys so much. Fun. Love you. And we'll stay in touch. Yeah, it was a blast. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you. I started this podcast because... It occurred to me that there was a concerted effort to shame America and what it means to be American. When I asked myself, what can I do about this? It's really hard because I'm not a political action committee. I don't have a tremendous amount of followers. I certainly didn't when I started. I am one American. One American podcast reinforces the values and ideals of America. It reinforces Americanism by having conversations with key influencers of all sorts of different backgrounds, beliefs, but with one thing in common, the belief in America and that America is inherently good. So I'm asking you today as one American to subscribe to the channel on YouTube to keep the conversation going to reawaken America.